Let's go ahead and get our Bibles out and just turn to the very first page. As we're turning there, I just, uh, I feel like I, I can't let it pass without comment how sweet our fellowship has felt this morning. It just, it's felt like the Spirit of the Lord has really been with us and, and blessed our time together as we've prayed and sung and listened to His Word. My prayer is that He would continue to bless us as I open up God's Word and talk about His good creation. In 2016, at the age of 30, I got on a plane and I flew to Las Vegas in the hope of meeting for the first time the man that I had been told my entire life was my father. And I I remember specifically as, as I was about to get on the plane, I took a moment to pause and to contemplate my life kind of went down the list. I'm a Christian. Praise God. That's a miracle. I'm married to an amazing wife. Praise God. A double miracle. I have two amazing children. I'm serving in full-time ministry, and I am more or less a well-adjusted adult and a productive member of my community. And yet there was something in me that said that I desperately needed to go to get on this plane and meet this man that had at least halfway contributed to my life and existence. It felt like even after so much grace in my life, a large part of my story was incomplete without at least laying eyes on this man who had given me life. And I did. I met him. And then through a series of unfortunate events, I found out that this man that I met, ostensibly, my whole life I've been told was my father, I found out that he was in fact not my father. And surprise gave way to disappointment, and then relief, and then confusion, and then finally grief. You know, looking at the matter objectively... The story of my life was no different upon hearing that this man was not my father than it had been just a few months prior. Objectively speaking, I was once again just like I was the first 30 years of my life, a man without a father. But hope had done something to me. Hope had awakened something in me, a desire that I didn't understand and I couldn't understand until I felt That feeling. I had come to hope that after meeting this man, I would be able to answer many of the unknowns of my life my ethnicity and cultural heritage, my family story, my good looks. Where does it all come from? And so when the DNA test came back negative, I tried to play it cool. Everything's just like it was before, not a big deal. But I couldn't play it cool. Because hope had changed me, and I was crushed, and as a grown man, I cried, and it was an ugly cry, an embarrassing cry, and I found myself asking all kinds of questions that really sound more reasonable coming out of the mouth of a seven-year-old child than a 30-year-old man, questions like, who is my father? Why didn't he love me? Why didn't he want me? Why didn't he stay? Questions like, why didn't he try to find me? I tried to find him. Why didn't he try to find me? Questions like, who am I? What is my story? And friends, we all have a story. Some of us know the details of our own lives better than others, but within each of us, there is a desire, a deep-seated desire to know not only who we are, but also what this world is, what this life is, what place do we have in the universe. We want to know the answers to all of life's most important questions, questions like, is there a God? If God is there, what is He like? What does he want from us? What is this world? And how does my life 
factor into the cosmos? Or does my life matter at all? Now, whether you realize it or not, you are being told the story of life every day in a thousand different ways. Every time you turn on the TV or watch a movie or read a book or take a class or listen to music, someone is telling you their version of the story of life. Now, here is the most commonly told version of the story of life in our day. Once upon a time, a long time ago, before space and time even existed, there was something called a singularity, a point of infinite mass and density that exploded. What caused the explosion? We don't know. And when this tiny pinprick of matter exploded for reasons that we don't understand, out came the cosmos. That's chapter 1, verse 1. The story continues to unfold over the course of billions and billions and billions of years as time and chance act on matter to produce what we now know of as life. What is life, you ask? We don't know. But we do know that it is the result of the finely tuned laws of physics. Finely tuned by who, you ask? We don't know. And please stop interrupting the story. Now, as time and chance acted on matter, life progressively grew in complexity from a single-celled organism over the course of billions of years to something approximating a salamander, and from a salamander to something like an ape, and from an ape to something like a hominid, and from a hominid to something like a human, and over the course of a couple hundred thousands of years of human breeding and procreation, you arrived on the scene. How did you get here? Well, a gamete and an egg formed a zygote. And that zygote eventually turned into what we all now know of as not a baby, but a clump of cells. And eventually those clumps of cells turned into, well, you sitting here right now today. Magical. A magical story. Now, of course, as you think about yourself in this story, you are going to be inclined to think that your life is special that you have this inherent value and dignity and worth. You have meaning and significance. But in reality, you are just one of the trillions of life forms in the universe. And you are really only special because you believe yourself to be special. And at the end of the day, everything that you feel is merely the result of a complex chain of chemical reactions that really only serves one purpose. To ensure the survival of your genetic material. Every last one of your feelings and desires is simply hardwired into your genes and influenced by your environment, don't you know? Your love is nothing more than a cascade of chemical processes in your gray matter. Your suffering is inconsequential. Your tears and your cries of lament are nothing more than a shout into the void. And your values and morals are arbitrary, relative, and ultimately meaningless. Yes, friends, the prevailing story of your life today is that you came from nothing, that you exist for nothing, and that one day you will die and go back to nothing. The story of your life is that you are just a bundle of cells, a, a, a body bag of carbon matter tucked away in the back corner of space, your life is nothing more than a death rattle in the throat of the black abyss of the universe. Now, the great storytellers of our secular age may at times try and romanticize this story for you. 
Take, for example, this sermon from Neil deGrasse Tyson. The atoms of our bodies are traceable to stars that manufactured them in their cores and exploded these enriched ingredients across our galaxy billions of years ago. And for this reason, we are biologically connected to every other living thing in the world. We are chemically connected to all molecules on earth. And we are automatically connected to all of the atoms in the universe. We are not figuratively, but literally, stardust. This is, of course, a very lovely and poetic way of saying that you are nothing more than carbon matter in the universe, which is just one giant star graveyard. Other storytellers in our secular age are a little less artistic and a little more straightforward as they tell the story. Modern myth maker Richard Dawkins tells us the story of everything like this. The universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is, at bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless, indifferent. Friends, I'm here this morning to tell you a different story. I'm here this morning to tell you a better story, a truer story. Now here's the thing about good stories. They take several different stories and they weave them together like various materials woven into a new and beautiful fabric. What you need to know is that at some level, all of our stories are in fact inextricably connected. Connected by what, you ask? Well, maybe a better question would be connected by who? If you want to understand your story, you cannot begin with your childhood traumas or even the night you were born or your family history on Ancestry.com. You must begin way, 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 way further back. You must begin all the way at the beginning and even before the beginning. You must begin with the author of the story himself. You must begin with God. And so we do today. This morning we begin our sermon series through Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3. And more specifically today we begin before the beginning in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Friends, this is true. Amen. What you need to know about Genesis 1-1 is that it is not merely a prologue to the story of Genesis 1, or really to Genesis as a whole. It's not really the prologue to the Pentateuch or the, the Old Testament or even the whole Bible. This verse, seven words in your English Bible, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine words in your English Bible, seven in Hebrew is the beginning of history itself. This verse is the beginning of the story that makes sense of every other story. Yours, mine, everyone's. This verse is a true story, and it all begins with the main character, God himself. And so with that, we go to point number one, God is. Point number one, God is. Since uh, time immemorial, human beings have conceptualized their existence by beginning with the reality of the world outside of themselves. And then 400 years ago, the world was forever changed by a Roman Catholic philosopher by the name of René Descartes. Descartes came along and he taught the entire Western world a kind of radical skepticism about the world about our place in the world, and about our knowledge of the world. And what he did was this. He taught mankind to understand the world, not by beginning with what's out there, but by beginning with what's in here. You know the phrase. It's famous. He stole it from Augustine and secularized it. I think, therefore, I am. 
This idea, I think, therefore I am, is the photo negative of Genesis 1.1. Genesis 1.1 says, no, Renee, and that's a girly name, no, Renee, God is, therefore you are. Our story does not begin with the comprehension of our own existence. Indeed, friends, it cannot begin that way. Our story, if we are to let the author tell it the way that he pleases, must begin with the reality of God's existence. You'll notice that as God tells us the story of everything, he does not begin with an argument for his existence. He does not feel the need to set out a series of logical proofs for his existence. Rather, he begins with a simple assertion that he is, because he is, in the beginning, God. Everything in the story of this entire universe, from the butterfly's wing to the aurora borealis, from the far-off galaxies to the unseen particles yet to be discovered in the atom, Everything in creation begins with the reality that God is. Anything and everything that we know about the world begins with the reality that God is. Anything and everything that you think you know about yourself begins with the reality that God is. Now, before we move on to point two, I'd like for you to notice that as God begins to tell us our story, He doesn't answer every question that we may like to know about. He doesn't answer the question, for example, of like, why does God exist? And there's a reason for that. It's because God, as he tells us this story, doesn't give us everything that we we might possibly want to know. Instead, he just tells us everything that we need to know in order to follow the story faithfully. Point number two, our God is one. Our God is one. The Bible begins with an understanding that there is only one God. If you study the oldest creation accounts from all over the world, you'll find that they all spring from a world in which everyone believed in a multiplicity of gods. From the ancient Assyrians to the Greeks and Romans, they all believed in a pantheon of divine beings. You know, you had the the gods of the stars and the moon and the sun, and you got the gods of the wine and the wheat and the rain and the god of the dead and the god of music and etc., etc., etc. But the creation accounts of the ancient world are not lovely, they are not beautiful, and they are not true. The ancient Egyptians believed that the earth was the result of ancient gods procreating and there being a sort of slippage, if you will. I won't elaborate. The Babylonian account of creation has the god Marduk slaying another female goddess with his battle axe and then quartering her body and taking part of her corpse and creating the heavens with it and taking the other part of her corpse and creating the earth. It's weird, wild stuff. But Genesis 1-1 is unique in its account of creation. On the one hand, it confronts the modern creation myth, the myth of evolution, which says there is no God, it's just the universe self-existing. On the other hand, it confronts the ancient creation myths by telling us that there is, in fact, no panoply of gods, but rather there is one God, the supreme being, creator, sustainer, and ruler of the universe. As Isaiah 45 says, there is one God, and besides him, there is no other. As the ancient Jews, our forefathers, professed, hear, O Israel, you people of God, the Lord our God is one. Now, Later in this story, past Genesis 1-1, the God of the universe will reveal himself to us more and more. He'll reveal himself to us by his name as he makes a promise to us. He'll reveal himself not only as one, but also three in personhood. And that's kind of hard to wrap your mind around. But we're not there yet. We're still here in Genesis 1-1. And as the story is beginning to be told God begins by correcting every other story. 
Isaiah 44, 6. I am the first, I am the last, and besides me, there is no God. Point number three, our God is spirit. Our God is spirit. Now, this is the point of the sermon where we're going to have to do some inference. You may be wondering, well, Genesis 1-1 doesn't say that. What are we, where are you getting this from? Well, we're, we're getting there by way of inference, right? So how does that work? God is spirit. One theologian says it like this. Before the creation of the heavens and the earth, there was nothing but God, right? In the beginning, he created everything, There was no space, no time, no matter, no energy. They were all created by him, which means that he himself does not consist in space, time, matter, or energy. What do we call a being that does not exist in space, time, matter, or energy? A spirit. John chapter 4 tells us that God is in fact spirit. Point number four, our God speaks. Our God speaks. In order to really see this, you got to cheat just a little bit. you got to go ahead and, and read verse 3 into verse 1. Look at verse 3. This is the beginning of all of the creation. And it says, And God said... Then as you go through the rest of Genesis 1, you see that God is constantly speaking creation into existence. When God creates, He does so by the power of His Word. Friends, it's important for us to understand... That God is not a mere abstraction. He is not an impersonal force. He is infinitely more than the Greek concept of logic or the philosopher's concept of the unmoved mover or the mere blind driving force of physics. No, friends, God, though He is a spirit, is a person and He communicates as a person with His words. Our words are not like his words. His words bring galaxies into existence. Nevertheless, he does speak through words, as we read this morning, Psalm 19. The heavens proclaim the glory of God. The skies display his craftsmanship. Day after day, they continue to speak. Night after night, they make him known. They speak without a sound or word. Their voice is never heard, yet their message has gone throughout the earth and their words to all the world. Speaking on Psalm 19, David Haynes says, It is as if every part of creation is screaming, God made me. Or as the author of Hebrews writes, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the power of the word of God. By faith we understand that. If you're wondering why all these people are so heavily invested in trying to find some way to explain the beginning of the universe apart from God, it's because they don't have the faith to understand that God spoke it into existence. Point number five, our God is eternal. Our God is eternal. In order for God to not only be present in the beginning, but also create the beginning itself, He had to precede the beginning. Does that make sense? He had to exist literally before anything else existed. He had to be the first cause. He had to be the unmoved mover, the uncreated one who has always existed within himself. Jonathan Gibson writes this, He was there in the beginning because he had no beginning. And he will be there in the end because he also has no end. God was and is and is to come. And so he reveals himself to Moses by saying, I am that I am. Another commentator writes this, Genesis is the story of the beginning of everything and everyone except God. Or, as the psalmist declares, before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world, From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Point number six, our God is immortal. Our God is immortal. 
If God has always existed and is self-sustained and is the producer of all life in the universe, then it necessarily follows that no one and nothing can take God's life. His life can never seep out away from him like a flat tire. His life not only extends backwards in time and since before time itself, but it also extends often to the horizon of the future forever and ever and ever. As 1 Timothy 6.16 tells us, God alone has immortality. Or the prophet Isaiah, have you not known, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. Point number seven, our God is infinite. Our God is infinite. When you read that God created the heavens and the earth, you should remember not to interpret this too literally. I don't mean that God didn't create the heavens and the earth. He did. But what I mean by literally is like that he only created the heavens and the earth, right? This, this, the way that this is phrased, to use fancy $2 theological terminology, it's a, it's a, a merism where you take two points and you set them up and it communicates everything in between, you kind of see this in the book of Acts, the four corners of the earth, right? It doesn't mean four corners. It means everything that's there, right? So this, this idea is that God created everything as far as anything is to be found. And because God created everything, therefore we must understand that God is beyond everything. God could not create something greater than himself, now, when we say that God is eternal, we're thinking temporally, right? And we kind of have timelines set up as far back as you can go, and then we say that he's a more, you know, as far in the, in the future as we can go. But when we say that God is infinite, what we're saying is that he knows no restrictions of space or ability or time or power. As the psalmist says in Psalm 145, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness, that is his vastness, is unsearchable. With current rocket technology, it would take us something like 73,000 years to get to the edge of the known universe. And then when we got there, we'd be like, oh, this, this is what we thought was the edge. It probably wouldn't even be the edge. 73,000 years. And if we were to somehow, some way, figure out a way in which we could preserve our lives and travel for 73,000 years and get all the way to the edge of the universe, when we got there to the edge in hopes of finding God, we would find him there having beat us by about 73,000 years because God is infinite. He is huge, to use a less fancy word. He is big. I love it when secular materialists try and weaken the fake the faith of Christians by describing the vastness of the universe. Well, don't you know there are more stars in the sky than there are grains of sand in the sea, as if that's going to mess my faith up. All, when you tell me that, all you do is blow my mind about the bigness of my God. Behold, says 1 Kings 8.27, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain Point number eight, our God is self-existent. Our God is self-existent. If God is eternal and immortal and infinite, then it must follow that God is in need of nothing for his own existence. We need bread and food and clothing and shelter and love and light from outside of ourselves, but not God. God has existed within himself without even a hint of dependence. This is pictured for us beautifully in the burning bush. God appears to Moses in the burning bush. Combustion is taking place. You need material, you need oxygen, right? The bush should be consumed, but it's not consumed. Why? Because God is communicating the idea that he does not need to consume in order to exist. He simply is. Acts 17, 24 and 25. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, 
does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as if he needed anything, since he himself is the giver to all people of life and breath and everything. Point number nine. Our God is life. This one is pretty obvious, maybe the most obvious point this morning. If all of life as we know it is created by God, then all of life must flow out of God himself. And so the psalmist says, for with you is the fountain of life. And Jesus says in John chapter 5, the Father has life in himself. Point number 10, our God is creator. Our God is creator. Uh, Reading commentaries on the book of Genesis is interesting. It's one way to pass your time, you know. There are many scholarly debates about questions of chronology and and genre and theology and lions and tigers and bears, oh my. But one thing that you'll find in every commentary universal is the fact that the Hebrew word used in Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created, the Hebrew word for create, is used over 40 times in the Old Testament and it never once refers to the act of a human being. It is only used in reference to God's creative deeds. Human beings are created in God's image and therefore we do in a way create, but see All of our creation flows out of this first initial act of God's creation, where God created, theologians say, ex nihilo. That is, he made everything out of nothing. He didn't need anything to create the world. No hammer, no nails, no glue, no wood, no steel, no iron, no no need to take classes to figure out how to use the software to paint the picture or edit the photo. No, he created perfectly. His word is the material of the universe and the tool he uses to fashion the universe. Revelation 4.11 says, For you, Lord, created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Point number 11. Our God is artistic. This could have been a subpoint for point number 10, but I was on a roll in sermon prep, so it's point 11. And in this point, I want to make, I want to give even more clarity to, the, to this idea of God as creator. What kind of creator is he? Well, he's an artistic creator. He's not doing it for the mere functionality. Okay, I need to have a bridge that goes between this point and that point, and, and, and structural integrity is all that I care about. That's not the God of the Bible. Our God is an artist. Ask yourself this question. Why is there something rather than nothing? And then ask yourself this next question. Why, when we look at the heavens and the earth, are we constantly blown away? If we have eyes to see, if we just stop and look up from our phones for like one second and just like look at a flower, why are we blown away by the beauty of the cosmos? God created this world this way because at some level, beauty pleases him. We're going to see this a little bit later, probably next week, in chapter 1 of Genesis. After each day of creation, God steps back like an artist and he admires the work of his hands and he says, it is good. That is, he is pleased with the goodness and the beauty of his artful creation. Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Point number 12, our God is free. Our God is free. They say that necessity is the mother of all invention. We humans, we create because we see a need And we desire to overcome that need so that our life will be better. But not God. Our God never needs anything. We've already established that. And therefore, 
He never creates due to any kind of inward or external compulsion. Nobody's forcing him to create. Nothing is the, is the necessity of his invention. He creates merely out of a desire within himself that is totally and 100% free. Psalm 115, verse 3. Our God is in the heavens, and he does all that he pleases. Point number 13. Our God is omnipotent. It means all-powerful. If God made everything from nothing, and if he sustains everything constantly, then he must be all-powerful. Jeremiah thirty-two seventeen, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. And after last week, we know what an outstretched arm is, right? It is the evidence of his divine power. Nothing, says the prophet Jeremiah, is too hard for you. Isaiah 40, to whom then will you liken me, asks God, that I should be his equal. Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars, the one who leads forth forth their hosts by number. He calls them all by name because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one of them is missing. Point number 14. Our God is omniscient. If God created the universe and everything in it, then he must know everything that there is to know about it. 1 John 3, verse 20. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Point number 15. Our God is omnipresent. That is, he is everywhere. At all times. If God is the architect and creator and sustainer of the universe, then it must follow that he is therefore present everywhere in the universe. And so God asks this question through the prophet Jeremiah Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him? Do I not fill heaven and earth? There's that merism again heaven and earth. It doesn't just mean the land and the sky. Do I not fill All of creation? That's a rhetorical question, by the way. The answer is yes. Psalm 139. The psalmist asks, where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol with the dead, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest parts of the sea, even there your hand will lead me. And your right hand will lay hold of me. Point number 16. Our God is sovereign. Our God is sovereign. (coughs) The God who existed before all things and who created all things and who sustains all things and who knows all things and who is present with all things must necessarily be the one who is in complete control of all things. It means that you're not, by the way. As the psalmist declares, our God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. Point number 17, our God is just and righteous. If God is the creator of all things, and the sustainer of all things, and if he has power over all things, and if he is present with all things, then he is also the one who creates the moral fabric of all things. If there are such things as goodness, and righteousness, and truth, and justice, then we, the creatures, those who have been created, we do not get to dictate these things. We do not get to define these things. We don't get to decide what is good and right and true. The one who created these categories in the first place is the one who gets to define these categories. He does define them. And he walks in them perfectly because they are an expression of his own nature and character. For this reason, Abraham can ask the question and be confident of the answer. Shall not the judge of all the earth do 
what is right? And the answer is yes. Point number 18, our God is holy. That is, he is distinct. He is altogether separate. The, the research being done by sociologists over the last 20 years in America is, is pretty clear. America is not becoming less religious. It is becoming less Christian. And one of the ways that we become less Christian is by adopting and syncretizing other religions into our own religion. And there's been a fascination in America for decades now with syncretizing parts of Eastern religion in with Christianity. And so one trend that has manifested amongst young professing Christians is a kind of pseudo-pantheism. Pantheism is the worldview that says that the entire world and God are really just the same thing. You've probably heard of this idea, I am in God and, and God is in me and yes, queen, I am divine, you know, that sort of thing. Everything is divine. Well, that is a story. But it is not the story. It's not the story that God tells. God begins the story by saying, although I have created all things, I am distinct from my creation. God created the heavens and the earth. It does not say in Genesis 1-1 that God is one with the heavens and the earth. It doesn't say that God emanated like bubbles, like soap bubbles from your dishwashing water, the universe out from himself. No, he spoke, his word left him, and then created something distinct from him. There must be a distinction between the author and his story. Even as the author writes himself into the story, the author and the story are not the same thing. You can see this quite clearly in Romans 1 where Paul addresses the rebellion of mankind. And Paul comes along and he says that these rebels, they have worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. And when he says that, he's letting us know that the creature and the creator are not the same thing. Our God is holy. Point number 19. Our God is love. 1 John chapter 4, verse 8 tells us very plainly, God is love. Therefore, everything that God does is loving. It may not feel like love, loving to you in the moment, but it is loving. Everything that God has ever done has been an expression of His loving nature and character, including Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, when God chose to create the heavens and the earth, what He was doing was demonstrating His love. Now, what act of love could possibly come from the creation of the universe? Well, Titus 1.2 says that God promised eternal life, that is, God's loving salvation, Before the world began, God promised to demonstrate his love before the world began. What does that mean? It means (coughs) that when God created the world, one major reason why he created the heavens and the earth was to demonstrate his love to creation. Point number 20 Our God is glorious. Our God is glorious. Consider just one more time. This is like the fifth time we've read it, but it's it's good, so we're going to do it again. Psalm 19, just verse 1. The heavens, and by the way, that is creation, right? That's shorthand poetic for creation. The heavens declare, that is, they preach. They preach a sermon about what? About the glory of God. The heavens declare the glory of God. So as God puts pen to paper, as he creates the universe by the power of his word, as he begins to tell us this story, he does so with one ultimate purpose, to preach a sermon about his glory. And all of creation, since the very first instant that God spoke it into existence up until today, and all the way until he comes and recreates creation, Creation will be proclaiming the glory of his name. Writing on Psalm 19, John Calvin says this, The glory of God is not written in small, 
obscure letters, you know, like the, the fine print at the bottom of a contract that we never read, right? No, they are richly engraved in large and bright characters which all men may read and read with the greatest of ease. God is glorious and all of creation is magnifying his glory. And so the Apostle Paul says in Romans 1, what may be known about God is plain because God has made it plain. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal, his eternal power, his divine nature, that's his glory, and many more attributes have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made. Point 21. <clears throat> Our God is worthy of praise. Our God is worthy of praise. I'm going to tell you something that I hope, I hope, I hope, I hope I never forget. I hope you never forget this. It's the difference between true religion and false religion. It's the difference between playing dress up, coming to church on Sunday morning, just, you know, kind of doing your thing, and like actually following the God of the universe. All of our theology must lead to doxology. All the things that we are putting in our head about who God is, the, the 20 points that we've covered this morning thus far, if you're just sitting there thinking like, man, I'm going to know so much stuff about God after this. I'm going to be able to show off to so many people after this, all the stuff that I know. Man, after today, I've, I've really leveled up in my theology game, if that's the instinct in your heart, which, listen, I've been there, done that, probably still sometimes do it, but, right? we need to all repent together, and we need to recognize that everything that we've said about the nature and character and existence of God and His mighty deeds this morning should lead you not to be excited about yourself, but to be excited about God, to see Him more clearly, to love Him Better to appreciate him in all things, to be thankful towards him, to savor his goodness. All of our right thinking about God must necessarily lead us to an appropriate response to who God is, which is why we began this morning with our call to worship from Roman, uh, Revelation chapter 4, verse 11. Just, this is, this is the end of all things. And, and we, we read these words, worthy are you. Is that what you've experienced this morning? Or have you thought, point number 18? Jeez, right? But, but maybe if you did and you powered through and you, and you were still just able to focus on who God is, hopefully by the time we got to here, point number one, you were already saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. <coughs> Why? For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Genesis 1.1 is not mere prologue. It is a universal call to worship. Friends, do you understand that God did not have to write himself into this story? He could have created a universe without any awareness of his existence. He could have concealed himself and not in any way revealed himself. But he did not write the story in that way. He wrote the greatest story ever told and he wrote himself into the story so that we might know our author. Why? Why did he do it that way? So that we might see him, love him, and praise him as our creator. Now, in closing, points 24 through 27, just kidding. In closing, um, <clears throat> a long time has passed, a long time, at least the way humans measure time, since God first spoke the world into existence. Ages and ages have come and gone between the moment of creation and this moment that we're living in right now. The story has continued to unfold, and 
Many great and terrible things have happened since Genesis 1-1. For example, we'll get there in a few weeks in Genesis 3. Sin entered the world and tried to ruin God's story. And if God were anything less than who He is, it might have. But later in this story, we will see that the author of the story enters into the story to save the story. And here's what I want you to know before you leave today. The same God who wrote the beginning of this story will one day bring this story to an end. On that day, you will experience something unlike anything you've ever experienced before. The trumpet will sound. The sky will crack. It will seem as if the universe is coming apart at the seams. And then something amazing is going to happen. Creation itself will be reborn. The heavens and the earth and everything in between will be transformed by God. There will be a new beginning, a second beginning, the final beginning. The irony, the irony of the end of our story is that our story will have no end. For some of us, the eternality of this second act of creation will be good news. It'll be the best news. For the rest of us, the eternality of the end will cause what Scripture calls a weeping and a gnashing of teeth. Why? Because the author of the story has created a place called hell. And this place exists to punish those who have chosen to rebel against the one who's writing their story. And when men find themselves there in this place, they will see the plain truth of the matter, which is this. They knew this story was true. The heavens have been declaring it to them every second of every day of their existence, and they chose to reject the truth. They chose to suppress the truth of the goodness and glory of God in their unrighteousness. They were arrogant enough to believe that they could write a better story for their lives than God. So the question that I have for you this morning is this. How will your story end? Let's pray. Father God, your word has once again breathed life into our souls. So often it feels like we're limping our way to heaven and we just need you to come and carry us and you have, God. You have lifted us up on the wings of eagles as we have considered who you are and every great thing that you've done. So we pray that we would walk out of here stronger, holier, and more in love with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.